Good afternoon, Professor Perea. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the SFFA ruling and the history of the GI Bill in terms of its impact on affirmative action. How are you doing, Professor Perea? Um, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Uh, I look forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us. It's truly a privilege. So when preparing for this episode, I read your paper about the history of the GI Bill titled Doctrines of Delusion, How the History of the GI Bill and Other Inconvenient Truths Undermine the Supreme Court's Affirmative Action Jurisprudence. I found it to be a great article and it was very enlightening. But for those of our readers who aren't as familiar with the history of the GI Bill, can you please provide us with a summary or sort of a primer on what we need to sure. know? Sure. Well, one of the claims that the Supreme Court makes in its affirmative action cases is that past societal discrimination is not compelling and it's too, too amorphous at reaching into the past. And what I show in that article is that the history of the GI Bill roughly between 1945 and 1970 that basically that history proves an enormous amount of race discrimination against principally black veterans, notwithstanding the aims of the GI Bill. So the GI Bill was meant to provide benefits to returning veterans, uh, to veterans returning from World War II. It provided two kinds of benefits, education benefits and housing benefits. The education benefits were basically payments of tuition and a stipend to students that could use those, you know, those financial resources to any college that would accept them. And white veterans were able to take full advantage of that benefit because there were no restrictions on admissions of white veterans. However, most colleges and universities in the country, and in particular those in the South, all of them discriminated against black students. So black students were unable to gain admission to most of the most desirable schools in the country and basically couldn't get admission in many instances anywhere. So the only places that accepted black veterans were some of the historically black colleges and universities in the South, which were terribly underfunded and small. And so a majority of black veterans who wanted higher education weren't able to get it because of the racism of most institutions of higher learning. So the education benefit actually made the education gap worse. And it's a, a similar but perhaps more devastating story under the housing benefit. The housing benefit was basically that the, uh, the federal government would guarantee mortgage loans made by banks for veterans who wanted to buy homes. So this made it much less risky for banks to lend to veterans. However, most banks refused to lend to black customers under any circumstances. So again, the only veterans who were able to take advantage of the housing benefit were white veterans who were able to buy homes. And most black veterans basically got no benefit from the housing benefit. If we fast forward to the present, home values have increased very substantially and white veterans and their families and heirs have been able to build wealth based on the increase in home values. But African-American veterans and their heirs have not been able to build wealth. So uh, one estimate is that home equity is about 60% of every family's or of homeowning family's net worth. And the, the results of the GI Bill are a major reason why there is such a wealth gap between blacks and whites today. So the effects of the racism 
in the administration of the GI Bill are acutely felt today. And to date, there's been no remedy for just that outright discrimination. You make the the point about the sort of net worth really impacting or disproportionately impacting the black and white communities following the GI Bill. I mean, you noted that the median net worth of white households in the 1980s was 39,000, where it was 3,400 for black households. And by 2010, the the median net worth of black households only went up to 5,000, which is still only 4% of the net worth of white households. So I really see your point about how the economic structures are still implicated throughout even today. Yes, the net worth statistics are stunning. And even more stunning is the way that that gap was created very largely through white racism against black soldiers. And I think you also make the point that this lack of income is a major reason why we might see certain admission standards in colleges and which demographics are applying to schools and which ones aren't. For example, who has access to people that can train them for study for standardized tests, gain admissions counseling help, or even when they get admitted to a college, who has the ability to pay for tuition without seeking an absorbent amount of loans, for example. Yes, uh, family wealth makes a huge difference in possibilities for higher education for the reasons you mentioned. Relatively wealthy families are able to uh, pay for prep courses and lessons and after-school activities, and they're able to provide the things that many colleges and universities look for in applications. So white families in general are much more able to provide their kids with the resources they need to succeed in higher education. And many black families can't afford those same things. And again, much of this comes down to the uh, very racist results of the GI Bill. Speaking of the educational component of the GI Bill, for our audience, can you describe what the university specifically thought about black applicants at the time? when they were supposed to be benefited by the GI Bill in terms of getting money to pay for tuition and other educational benefits? Well, I I like to use the story of Bruce Wright, who was a young high school student, outstanding student and outstanding athlete. And he won a full scholarship to Princeton, which then is now a very prestigious institution. So he arrived to register you know, for his first classes. And immediately he was pulled out of the registration line because he was a young black man. And Princeton did not even begin to desegregate until the early 60s. And so black students weren't allowed on campus at all. And so the dean of students instructed Wright that he should go for a place that go to a place where he would be comfortable and where where his own kind went to school and that he wasn't welcome at Princeton. So, uh, you know, that must have been a very horrifying event for Wright, and he describes it as such in, in some interviews. He uh, eventually enrolled at Lincoln University, which is a historically black college and university, and went on to enjoy quite a bit of success. He became a lawyer and eventually became a federal judge, and uh, he, he did very, very well, notwithstanding the racism basically uh, kicked him out of Princeton before he even had a chance to start. Now, most white institutions, Princeton was particularly bad, but most white institutions also discriminated against black students. So the numbers of black students at places like Harvard and other elite institutions are tiny. 
three students, five students. And even the, the uh, elite school with the highest enrollment of Black students is the University of Pennsylvania. And they only enrolled 46 out of 9,000 students. Only 46 were Black, which is it's a very tiny percentage. Actually, I think statistically it's close to zero. So all of these schools discriminated against Black students because of their race. And it's important to realize that one of the things that's hard in the present is to understand the depth of racism that has confronted uh, Black people since the beginning of American history, but even in the much shorter time frame of the GI Bill. That is race discrimination, to be told you do not belong here get out of here because your skin is black or brown. That is race discrimination, not what the court describes as race discrimination in its affirmative action cases. Generally speaking, when people talk about systemic racism, it's presented as some sort of abstraction. But the examples and data you provide so far are really illuminating what the nexus is between the educational component of the GI Bill and what the importance of affirmative action policies were at the time they were passed and what they are now. Could you please elaborate more on this sort of connection between the disproportionate administration of the educational benefits of the GI Bill in terms of how students like Bruce Wright and countless others were treated and how that created the need for affirmative action policies. So in the early 60s, you know, uh, this is the time of the civil rights movement. It's the time of very important civil rights legislation. And basically, as during the time of slavery, most Black students were denied the possibilities of education. And most Black veterans were too. And the schools knew this. They know what they did. They know that they weren't fair to African-American students. So affirmative action at its inception was an idea, a way to remedy the longstanding, the, the generations long race discrimination of predominantly white institutions. It was a small step to correct the uh, great harm that predominantly white institutions caused to black students. The remedy for exclusion by race is inclusion. And so schools began to do this. And there's never been anything wrong with affirmative action. In fact, it's a moral imperative. It's morally sound. It's the correct thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And honestly, we should have much more wide-ranging remedies for the uh, effects of white racism on Black students and Latino students and other people of color. You mentioned the need for inclusion in these programs. Do you think that Chief Justice Roberts' famous quotation about saying the only way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race is inclusive in any way, or do you think that's not grounded in reality? No, it's a very silly statement. Race discrimination is wrong, but where Roberts goes wrong is to assume that white students who may feel the effect of a remedy for race discrimination, that somehow that constitutes race discrimination against white students. That's nonsense. If you look at most educational institutions in the country, they're majority white still. If you look at most classrooms in this country, in higher education and in graduate school, most of the seats are filled by white students. This is not race discrimination. If it were race discrimination, it would be like Princeton in 1939, when Bruce Wright is yanked out of line and told, get out of here because you're black. Nobody says that or does that to white students. It's not race discrimination at all. It's just that the mediocre white candidates who don't get in 
They're mediocre compared to all the other white students that get in. And they can't deal with that. They can't deal with their own mediocrity compared to all the other white students that got in. This is not race discrimination. It's not race discrimination at all. It's providing a remedy. It's including people who should have been included from the first place, but who have been denied access for generations. Following up on your comment about the perceived victimization of affirmative action by certain demographics, as you pointed out, where do you think the current affirmative action discourse sort of goes wrong or falls short in not being characterized as a remedy for all of this longstanding inequality? It falls utterly short, and it's it's pretzel logic. Most of the assumptions that the Supreme Court has parroted about affirmative action are just false. It doesn't constitute racial, racial preferences. It's not race discrimination against whites. It's false that past discrimination is not compelling or that it's amorphous. And one reason why I wrote about the GI Bill is that there's nothing amorphous about this. There's nothing at all. You can see the bill. You can see who benefited. You can see who is able to buy housing. And you can measure the amount of wealth generated by increases in the value of the housing. There's nothing amorphous about it at all. So it's basically just a lie. And and from the beginning, the Supreme Court has steered us away from dealing with this country's horrid history of race discrimination. And so this is why Powell said that diversity is compelling, but not past societal discrimination. Well, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. Most of the legal system exists to provide remedies for violations of the law. And even if technically race discrimination didn't violate the law at the time of the GI Bill, we know it's wrong now and we know the harm it's caused. And so there has to be a remedy for that. And many institutions voluntarily provided that remedy in affirmative action. And then the Supreme Court got in the way. So uh, I think it's discourse is completely off point. And I think that was that was intentional, because when you actually start to look at past discrimination and, and the amount of harm that white racism is called to cause to black people, then you realize that the remedies are much greater than anything anybody's talking about. And that's just to begin a few steps towards fairness. It's stunning. The discourse is just totally off. And by the way, in SFFA, the court decides, well, diversity in education is not a compelling government interest. That's basically the holding in the case. Well, in effect, they're criticizing and and rejecting what Justice Powell said back in the 70s. He said the educational benefits of diversity are compelling. And now the court is mocking institutions that took that statement to heart. And, and the court is mocking the institutions for doing exactly what Justice Powell and other court majorities instructed. So, in fact, Roberts is just repudiating what his own court decided were the parameters. These universities have done nothing wrong. And in fact, I hope that they will feel empowered to continue doing the right thing. Professor Perea, you make a a lot of points referencing Justice Powell and what he wrote about affirmative action, specifically in Baki, as you just mentioned. Can you elaborate on the assumptions that you wrote about in your article that Powell relies on in Baki and how those sort of assumptions are basically inherent in the Supreme Court's SFFA ruling? Yeah, I mean, the reason Justice Powell's opinion still matters is because the court has relied 
on bits and pieces of it and until the Grutter case. And then in Grutter, the a court majority adopted Powell's reasoning. There's so much that's false in Powell's opinion. I've already commented on the idea that past societal discrimination is too amorphous or too removed in time. Well, that's nonsense. And I demonstrate it in that article. Powell asserts that the U.S. is a nation of minorities, and he says that in order to confuse the, the lived experiences of European immigrants with formerly enslaved Black people. So basically, his argument is, well, everybody's a member of a, of a minority that can lay claim to some history of discrimination. Therefore, we can't do anything about it. Well, that's nonsense. Because it's very easy to understand that the, the long-run effects of slavery and white racism, which has gone unabated, basically, since the beginning of U.S. history, everybody can understand that that is utterly different from the experience of white European immigrants. It's true that some white European immigrant groups were discriminated against when they first arrived in the U.S., but then they became white. The discrimination ended. And in fact, many of those people became discriminators themselves. So it's just nonsense. Of course, there's a principled basis for distinguishing between white immigrants and formerly enslaved people. The principled basis is the slavery, the effects of slavery, the effects of slavery on economic welfare, on health, on education, you name it. It's utterly different. In one part of the opinion, Powell says that there's no basis for differentiating between minorities except for racial preferences. Well, that's nonsense. I just gave you a really solid basis. Enslavement and its subsequent equivalence and the harms caused continually throughout American history provide a very unique and substantive and measurable basis that distinguishes African-American history from the history of every other group in this country. And I'm not saying that no other groups have been discriminated against. That's not true. People of color generally are discriminated against. But the history of enslavement is unique and profoundly important in understanding why a remedy is necessary and the scope of that remedy. What else does Powell say? Powell makes comments about... So Powell also talks a lot about the stigma borne by students of color and how affirmative action actually increases the level of stigma, This, which is something Clarence Thomas has also spoken extensively about. Yeah, he has. Yes, Justice Thomas has really adopted that as his own. Well, here's the thing. There's never been a time in American history when African-American identity wasn't stigmatized. Stigma far precedes affirmative action. And affirmative action doesn't make it worse. It just provides a way of witnessing that the stigma is still there. And of course, it's still there. Nobody's done anything to remediate it ever. The evidence shows, actually, there's a study by Deirdre Bowen some years ago showing that in places that abolished affirmative action, hostility towards Black students got worse, not better, worse. That is the anti-affirmative action position is basically a position of hostility towards Black students. And, and the stigma argument, it can be deconstructed usefully. 
So what is stigma? Some set of assumptions about uh, a person of color, a black student being allegedly inferior, not belonging, being present only because of affirmative action, etc. Those are all racist assumptions. Who holds the racist assumptions? Well, mostly it's white people and other students who want to indulge their racism against black students. So the irony of the stigma argument is to attempt to remove from black students the opportunities that they've always deserved and which they've been denied because of racism to deny those opportunities again because of white racism. In other words, white racism in the form of stigmatizing black and Latino students somehow becomes a justification for denying those students opportunities that they richly deserve. So somehow white racism becomes a justification for killing the remedy for white racism. And that only makes sense in a universe in which only white people's interests matter and in which the white majority is enabled by Supreme Court decision-making to ignore the proper opportunities that ought to be given to everyone, not just white students. Regarding this point of stigma, Professor Perea, what would you tell some of the students of color at Loyola who perhaps might be feeling stigmatized or might be perhaps feeling some sort of imposter syndrome and don't really know how to feel going forwards as they apply to other programs and schools or even, you know, get into the legal industry? I would say don't believe it for a second. You belong. You have always belonged in every single place that you find yourself of any quality, you belong as much as anybody else. One of the awful things is the degree to which many of us incorporate white racism into our own views of ourselves. And that's what happens when you when you start to buy into the idea, oh, I'm not qualified, oh, I don't belong, blah, blah, blah. Basically, you're adopting the white racism of stigma against yourself. And it's it's not easy to banish that, but everybody who we admit here and in any school, everybody belongs. Everybody's well qualified to be here. And so it's really a shame. And again, this goes along with being in a predominantly white institution. Part of the racism of a predominantly white institution is to allow, I hope not cultivate, to allow um, expressions of minority inferiority to dwell at all. It's just racism, pure and simple. There's no basis for assuming anything about anybody in the class, except that everybody who got in, got in because they're qualified and they belong, period. That's a wonderful message that I think everyone at Loyola needs to hear at least one more time. And there was a line in your article that I would love to share with our audience in which you wrote, if affirmative action increases the stigma inflicted upon African-American students, this is another way of saying that white people resent the presence of Blacks in presumptively white environments. Yeah, I believe that's true. So basically, white people should just deal with their racism and stop belittling, in effect, and mocking their colleagues of color who belong there just as much as the white students. And I'm not, I'm not saying every single white student, because I don't believe that to be true either. But for those students who indulge their own racism by stigmatizing people of color, that is racist. And it, and it shouldn't be allowed or tolerated.
To expound your point where you mentioned that these are presumptively and predominantly white institutions, I have some statistics here about diversity in the legal field that I would love to share with you. So in 2020, 5% of lawyers in the U.S. were black, which is the same as one decade ago, while 13.4% of the population is black. Similarly, 4% of lawyers are Hispanic, while 19% of the population is Hispanic. And 2% of lawyers are Asian, while 6% of the population is Asian. Now, getting more into the weeds in some of these stats, the disparities are even more apparent in terms of leadership in the legal industry. Only 2.1% of law firm partners are Black, and 2.8% of law firm partners are Latinx. In government, Black and Latinx lawyers are similarly significantly underrepresented, and the percentages of Asian American and Black federal clerics have actually decreased in the last 25 years. Given all of these disparities and the SFFA ruling, what can law schools and law firms do to prioritize diversity and equity going forward? Well, I think the statistics speak for themselves in a number of ways. Obviously, the representation of persons of color, of of all persons of color, is disproportionately small. In fact, I did a little quick math. I'm not exactly sure that I'm correct, but to me, it sounds like about 90% of law firm employees, lawyers in law firms, about 90% are white. And with respect to partners, it's more like 95 or 96%, something like that. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that predominantly white institutions like law firms have basically not changed at all in the last 20 years or so, because I, you know, I've been at this long enough that I remember the very dismal statistics from 20 or even 30 years ago. I've been around that long and basically nothing has changed. Well, why does nothing change? It's because law firms continue to do the same thing that they've always done. They haven't changed. And basically, I I think there needs to be a, a real reappraisal of why it's satisfactory for a profession charged with doing justice to in fact be the least progressive profession in the country with respect to diversity. The only sense that it makes is that law firms are bastions of white supremacy and the government, and it ought to be pointed out. I mean, how can they hold their heads high when basically they're just indulging their own white supremacy. How do they do this? Well, part of it is they use artificial criteria to restrict access to themselves, such as demanding certain grade point average or law review participation and other things, things that are demonstrably, that demonstrably have a disparate impact upon persons of color. And because of the educational disparities that we talked about before, it's an entirely unfair competition to use a a same and very, very high degree of performance norms on rich whites to evaluate everybody. It's just inherently unfair and it's unnecessary. You, You probably cannot show me that law review membership makes a better lawyer. Probably that's just, there's just no correlation. It's actually very hard to defend the criteria as being in any way related to effective lawyering. So why hang on to that? If you know that the effect of the criteria is to preserve a predominantly white bastion, then 
to continue to hang on to the criteria is a conscious choice to remain a white bastion. If you want to change that, then you have to change what you do. And honestly, I don't think it's ever been a supply problem. And here's why. I mean, often you hear people in law firms wringing their hands about how hard it is to find a qualified minority person, blah, blah, blah. This is nonsense. Harvard graduates about 600 students every year, a pretty significant percentage of whom are persons of color. Just go to Harvard every year, hire everybody there. And I don't mean to disparage other schools because the same thing is going to be true at many schools, including ours. We have really good students and really good beginning lawyers. There's a lot of excellence that we have and that other schools have. And so if you merely look, you will find it, but they don't look. So, uh, you know, it's very, very hard to believe that there's much sincerity at all. Everybody claims to be an advocate of diversity, but how many places actually do what it takes to become diverse? And it seems like that's really a very, very small number. And that's just regrettable. But then they shouldn't, shouldn't be able to say how committed they are to diversity because that's nonsense. It's not that hard. It's not a supply problem. We graduate lots of students of color every year. If these are the outcomes we've been seeing in a legal field where diversity has been more legally protected than it will be going forward, what can we anticipate or expect legal industry to behave or look like in the near future? Well, it, it really is going to depend on the, the courage of legal employers because the same practices that have been true of most colleges and universities that outright discrimination against students of color, law firms have done the same thing. And so there's a moral imperative there to include and to do the right thing. Now, there's nothing about the SFFA case that has anything to do with hiring. It's about university admissions, period. Some law firms are being sued. And I guess those kinds of suits and the, the reactions to the possibility of being sued is really a measure of character and a measure of commitment to equality. Because if there is no precedent right now restraining your behavior, then why restrain it? Why not continue engaging in affirmative, well, it, again, it's very hard to describe law firms as engaging in affirmative practices. But for those very few who might actually be engaged in that way, then the right thing to do is to keep going and keep doing what you're doing because this decision has nothing to do with employment. And in fact, that Title VII allows affirmative action explicitly. And that's the employment context. So there's no, there's no guarantee that the logic of the SFFA case is going to carry over into the workplace. I can understand the concern, but again, if, if you want to do the right thing, there's nothing stopping you. you. You keep going and you can't just succumb to a fear of being sued because you're going to be sued anyway. Not everyone will be sued. Most people won't be sued, but someone will be sued. What seems to be happening is that everybody's cowering or most institutions, educational institutions are cowering because they might get sued. Well, I understand that concern. It's true. Somebody might get sued, but it's not true 
that everyone is going to get sued. And in the meantime, for the huge majority of firms and educational institutions that aren't getting sued, keep doing the right thing. Keep doing the right thing. I think we all know it's the right thing. The way you respond to a dismal history of exclusion is to include. Very well put, Professor Brea. And as you mentioned and alluded to earlier, there is nothing in the ruling facially that would have any impact on hiring attorneys at all. Yeah. Yet we are seeing legal action from the same group behind the Students for Affair admissions, Edward Bloom, who have sued Perkins Coley and Morrison Forster in August, claiming both of those firms' diversity fellowships discriminated against white students. Since that suit was filed, both of the firms have removed racial considerations from the fellowships. So do you think that removing race from those fellowships is still going to provide diverse students with good outcomes? Or is this just another way that a perceived victimization is going to continue? Well, I, I would see it mostly as another way that perceived victimization is going to continue, because I would love for any disgruntled white applicant to explain to me how, and I'm sure both of those firms are majority white, probably by huge proportions. I would love for any of those disgruntled applicants to explain to me how they can claim race discrimination when just about everybody at the firm is white. It's nonsense. It's just nonsense. The firm is trying to encourage formerly excluded people, which is the right thing to do. And disgruntled white app, they're always going to be disgruntled white applicants. Abby Fisher is, and her father are directors of SFFA. Now, it was on the record in Fisher versus Texas that she would not have gotten in even if there was no affirmative action. So she was a mediocre white student who was less qualified than all the other white students that got in, notwithstanding, even though affirmative action made no difference in her case, and it's on the court record that that's true, she still sues. And she sues buying into this ideology that somehow people of color are getting some unfair preference. And it's nonsense. It's just nonsense. And now she's taking it to workplaces. I don't know what to say, except that the answer to mediocrity isn't to attack other people's success. It's about getting better yourself instead of indulging your own mediocrity. Given that these sorts of applicants and groups are attacking diversity and are unfortunately achieving some level of success here, and the fact that schools and workplaces reject all mediocre applicants, regardless of their background, do you think that there are any viable alternative approaches or frameworks that universities and places of employment can use to achieve diversity and inclusion goals while complying with these restrictions? For example, a lot of universities have been encouraging students to discuss their lived experiences and personal statements and how those inform the students' personal views on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, well, despite the defeat that uh, the SFFA case represents, there are still windows of opportunity there. And as you mentioned, students are, are still able to write about their lived experiences and should. And they should talk about what they've had to overcome to get where they are. Because that will be not for everyone necessarily, but it will be a story that will be remarkably different along racial lines because the lived experience of race is so different for people of color versus whites. So I would encourage students to 
describe their lived experiences and what they've had to overcome to get to where they are, to become successful like they are. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I would say that law firms ought to do the same thing. I don't think this is the right thing to do, but in order to comply with SFFA, remove traces of race consciousness, the box checking, the references to race, but continue to do the work. Look closely at, at the difference that lived experience makes. And honestly, again, I've said it before, I'll say it a million times. The strongest moral reason for affirmative action is the history of most predominantly white institutions discriminating overtly against blacks. And it remains a moral imperative to do the right thing and to include people who have been excluded in the past for racist reasons. You make the point there, Professor Perea, about sort of removing the traces of race-conscious admissions. Do you think that this might be taken too far by some schools and some workplaces in that they will only be saying they're prioritizing diversity, but without some level of race consciousness, they cannot actually do that? Yeah, that seems correct. That's right. Again, it's possible to be... And again, I mean, let's, let's understand that the only reason that thinking about a student's race is wrong is because the Supreme Court has said it's wrong, but it's not. I mean, if one does it in a racist fashion, then that is wrong. But attempting to compensate for one's own racism in the past and to be inclusive as a corrective is absolutely the right thing to do. There's nothing wrong with it in in any way, regardless of what the court says. The discourse surrounding these issues has shifted since the ruling from race consciousness to legacy admissions, for example. And do you think that removing or sort of curtailing legacy admissions is going to provide some sort of equitable outcomes to people who might be disproportionately affected by the SFFA ruling, for example? Or is this just putting a Band-Aid on something that's never going to work? So legacy admissions is another way that white students get preference because most legacies, except at historically black colleges and universities, most legacies are going to be the children of white students who have attended the university before, you know, and sometimes it's generations. So this is a program that disproportionately benefits white students. And to some extent, why universities do it makes sense because They want to cultivate donors and they want to grow their endowments. Although at a certain point, I mean, some universities like Harvard are incredibly rich. And why do they need to keep growing their endowment? Some number of billions is probably enough. So there's a cost there that can be absorbed, I believe. So it it really depends on how legacy slots are allocated. If they're allocated using biased formulas then it won't make much difference to abolish legacy admits. And it's hard to imagine that that will actually happen, although I understand that some schools are doing that. And so, so that's something, it, it really depends on, on how those newly available seats are allocated. Will it be done fairly or will it be done using biased criteria? And that'll make all the difference. You make the point in your article that at Ivy League schools, 96% of living alumni are white. 
meaning that at these schools, the overwhelming majority of legacy admits will continue to be white, logically speaking. And another factor in legacy admissions is because of the unique status of schools as a tool of social mobility, a lot of these legacy admits have some level of increased wealth for someone who's not. And a lot of the discourse has actually surrounded on creating a sort of remedy uh, in terms of using income as a primary or as a larger factor for admission instead of race as sort of like an income-based affirmative action system. Do you think this is equitable in any way, or is this, again, just another Band-Aid? I think it's more of a Band-Aid than anything else, because salaries and income aren't distributed fairly and aren't distributed according to merit. There, there are racial gaps in pay, some of which, perhaps most of which, represents the cumulative effect. Much of it is the cumulative effect of past racism. And some of it is present discrimination. And so if you rely on income, you're relying on another result of discrimination, which is going to have a similar disproportionate impact as what already exists. So that doesn't seem fair. And to the extent income reflects wealth, then it's just replicating the unfairness that's already inherent in the system. Well, Professor Perea, given that we've explored the history of the policies that necessitized affirmative action to exist and the current rulings in modern discourse surrounding the issue, is there anything you can say to sort of assuage the fears and worries of law school applicants and students who are concerned about the type of legal industry they will soon be entering into? You know, that's that's a hard question in ways, but I I think legal education is really important. It's a way of understanding how the world works, and it's a way of making your voice more powerful. And so I think it's a really important kind of education to have. And I would say especially for any students of color who might consider coming to law school. And then there are all the disparities that we've been talking about. And even in the context of a flawed system, it's still possible to do good and to do the right thing. So I think students will have different priorities and different kinds of concerns, but honoring their own values and commitments and being sure to honor them in the context of law school and in the context of life after law school, there's a lot of good and right that can be done with the help of a law degree. So I would encourage anyone to think about it and to understand that it continues to be valuable. It's just that equality has always been a struggle. There's never been a time when it hasn't been a struggle. And so in, in a way, part of the question is, do we wanna struggle with the help of more weaponry, like a legal degree or not? And certainly I wouldn't say that law is the only discipline that can make one more powerful, but but certainly it is a discipline that can make one more powerful. Power, I don't mean in a dominant sort of way. I mean more powerful in expressing really important values and in being able to be a public presence manifesting those values. I would say it's really important to understand that the Supreme Court has made very, very serious moral errors throughout its history. And this decision to sacrifice opportunities and possibilities for students of color out of a, an 
illusory concept of discrimination against whites is another clear moral error. And in fact, if you if you look at the history of the Supreme Court, for most of its history, it has been a very active resisting power to equality. It has made many, many more decisions and had more force in denying equality than in promoting it. So it shouldn't be that much of a, in, in fact, the only window was during the Warren Court, where the only Supreme Court, and that's only 15 years. I mean, I've done the math. So basically 93% of the court's history, the court has been opposing equality, whether it says so or not. And only 7% has been in the real service of equality and making more equality. And there's nothing about the court that's changed. So the fact that it makes uh, pronouncements doesn't mean it's right. In fact, with respect to race, it's very likely to mean that it's going to be wrong and profoundly wrong. And by wrong, I mean it will make decisions reinforcing the status quo and making equality harder. It's important to understand that the court is not a court of justice and is not a court of equality. It's a court of supporting the status quo, supporting the majoritarian status quo. And there's lots of other lawmaking and lots of other bodies that might well be more responsive to equality concerns than the Supreme Court especially at the state and local level. Well, Professor Perea, thank you so much for illuminating so much of the history and context surrounding the affirmative action issue and why the implications are far-reaching and will continue to be so. Well, thank you so much for, for having me. I hope at least some in the Loyola legal community recognize and utilize the legal profession as a tool for good going forwards. And I hope other students agree with me and take your advice and feel that we do belong. Everyone is qualified to be here and we're able to build a stronger legal community going forwards.